Hello and welcome to this episode of Pause with Nandini. I am very, very pleased to have an old friend and um, an emerging leader in the blockchain space with me today. Gaurav Somvanshi is here, perhaps with his greatest challenge of his life, which is explaining to me what blockchain is all about. He is the CEO and co-founder of Emotech Innovations Private Limited, which is committed to bring about social good through the use of emerging technologies, such as blockchain and IoT. He's a graduate from IIM Lucknow and a computer science engineer. He's a Dalai Lama fellow. He has conducted workshops all over the world, as I see now, uh, but for government, um, for other educational institutions, he's a lead, he is also a leadership in innovation fellow with Royal Academy of Engineering UK. He's a weekly columnist on blockchain for one of the largest newspapers in Marathi. He's also a social activist, writer, and independent researcher. He has written in Hatred in the Belly, along with many other articles that he's published in Roundtable India. And he has recently also launched his book uh, on blockchain in Marathi, which is published by Madhushri Publications. And it's called Sakhliche Swatantra. I'm sure I've not pronounced it properly. I'll wait for him to correct me. Uh, and with that, welcome to the show, Gaurav. Lovely to have you. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity, Nandani. And it feels good to reconnect after a long time. And um, platforms like this and documentation like this is very important. It's very critical, especially for the work that we are trying to do, whether it's technology or activism. So thank you so much for this uh, initiative and uh, opportunity. Absolutely. Let's just jump right into it. Um, first of all, your work with Emotech Innovations. I know you founded the company, was it 2019? Yes, 2019. And in the blockchain space and uh, perhaps, you know, you're doing other things now, but one of the things that I read was uh, the AgroTrust um, work that you have, which is, which props specific integrated value chain with blockchain technology. Now you'll have to translate that into English for me. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, so I think uh, blockchain as a journey has a, like in the blockchain world, the best thing is you can go to anyone and ask them what is their blockchain story because everyone has an interesting story to come up with it. So my journey with startup or with Emotech Innovations begins much earlier in 2017 when I started doing the corporate stint. So uh, just to talk about briefly, I did my computer science engineering in 2011 and Although people think that there is some connection between my graduation and the work that I'm doing right now, that's completely not true. It's actually a myth that I use because when I want to say that, yes, I work in blockchain, I say that, yes, I've done computer science, but there's no connection between those two because first of all, I've never done computer science during my, I'd never studied well. It's possible to get by, uh, you know, without studying and still passing. And uh, the only reason that all of this thing happened is, uh, so the reason even I got into IIM um, management was because I could not code. I did not want to code. I could not code. And then suddenly IIM was something I was pushed into because I could not <laughs> go into. And then suddenly uh, for two or three years, I ran an NGO, in fact, by the name of Carl Sagan, Saganite Science Education Association. 
I did not take up a corporate job. I wanted to uh, popularize science education. And then all of that kind of was financially draining, especially with the EMIs for the student loan. And I had to do something which I had been actively trying not to do, which was a corporate job. And prior to that, I had a startup uh, with uh, great uh, people on their profiles, but startup failed completely in 2015 and then i needed some sort of uh, confidence some sort of uh, source of finances and then i decided to go into corporate uh, as a senior consultant for pwc pricewaterhousecoopers but the best part was over there the client that i had mr alex paul menon and my colleague uh, mr manish verma uh, uh, it was the exact opposite of what you would expect from a corporate in terms of there was so many major problem statements and uh, it was a complete open field that you see how you want to solve it. And it was in the government of Chhattisgarh back then. And January 2017 is when I moved to Chhattisgarh. And I, my so my basically my task was in direct benefit transfers. And people usually say that blockchain is a sol major solution in search of a problem. But in my case, it was the opposite thing. So what happens is, I'll just talk briefly about uh, how the entire blockchain idea came, comes into being. Direct benefit transfers is when the government is giving benefits either in cash or in kind like ration uh, to citizens. Now when that is happening, how are you registering the beneficiaries? Whether or not their bank accounts are correct, whether or not they are getting the money that is being promised to them, the welfare that is promised to them because a lot of fraud happens over there right and in order to clean that to digitize that uh, that was my basically primary task one thing i immediately realized that was uh, there are 26 i noted down 26 departments out of 40 plus departments who would uh, come under this uh, scope of work and i shortlisted 160 government welfare programs in which your tracking in which the government is directly talk, talking with the citizens g2c as we call it and after studying that it was that some government departments were fairly digitized some were absolutely not but imagine if there's one citizen and let's say that citizen is eligible for benefits all across 26 departments just a hypothetical scenario then the current way that it was operating is all 26 departments would be sending their staff on the ground to get that information and you don't have the guarantee that whether this information will be correct or not why because the different departments don't share data with each other and then when i ask this very innocent childish question why is it that let's say department a is not sharing data with department b that's when i came to know that it's not a chhattisgadi problem it's not a indian problem or a developing country's problem but it's a global problem even developed countries such as US, Australia, all of them face the same problem, which is that different departments have no means of sharing data with each other. Because first of all, their official reason is there's a lack of trust. That what if uh, Department A changes my bank account details and Department B meant again changes it again? So if, if there's only one single database, how do you actually manage uh, who is making the mistakes or mischiefs? Another reason is that it's a violation of privacy. So imagine one database, which includes all of my information from my income, caste, religion, my uh, any kind of uh, special status that I would be having, uh, 
any benefits that I would be getting with a single click of a button. So you have profiling at your fingertips. But the other flip side is, like let's say there's a uh, widow pension widow pension scheme like one of the schemes in Chhattisgarh. So when a death certificate is generated, at that same moment the there should be a registration in the widow pension scheme. But it's a completely separate process where you have to physically carry around that death certificate, re-register yourself in three other places. But if you're telling the government once what is your uh, characteristics in terms of my, let's say, gender, age, caste and everything, and I'm telling them what has happened with me, whether it's a benefit that I'm eligible to, why do I need to tell all the departments the same thing? That's a simple thing, simple question. And then, because I love to read, uh, you know, so parallelly what was happening, I was just reading and randomly. And I have this thing that where I randomly read Wikipedia. And people usually criticize Wikipedia, especially the academics, and I don't know why. I think it's the most powerful source out there. Free source, in fact. So during my Wikipedia random reading, I just happened to know, okay, what is Bitcoin? And then I was just like intrigued that why would you have a currency which doesn't have a backing to it? Then where who is providing the trust? And then I came to blockchain. And then the blockchain Wikipedia article I read entirely. And there was this idea that in order trust can be used separately from human beings and institutions. That's trust is something that could be mathematically coded into the things and then suddenly there was this connection wait a minute and this happened within the first month of my job i realized that maybe if we use blockchain technology because it's just a way to ensure that whatever your claims are they are trusted if i want to make something public it should be in a trusted manner if i want to hide something then that also should be in a trusted manner and that trust should come from mathematics. The moment you rely on peoples and systems and organizations, that's when you already lost the battle, right? Because uh, there's this, uh, uh, in one line, what blockchain is, there's this Greek, uh, there's this Latin phrase, which basically means who will guard against the guardian, quest, custodian, guardian, it's, it's something like that. Now, because it goes into an infinite paradox. Who will guard against the guardian? Okay, one more guardian. But who will guard against that guardian? One more guardian. Like who and will so, police the police? So yeah. Thing. And it will go on. Infinite. Because why? you're relying on human beings. But the moment I say no, I am trusting on mathematics to decide what is an objective version of reality. And that reality could mean any kind of information. So suddenly there was this new powerful technology and then the whole weekend I read about the entire history as much as I could find and I realized the, now that you know what technology is good when it's not just, you know, I, I, like, I call it, there's this something called technical jugglery. You can just take one technical element, make it more complex and just throw it around for investors and everyone and people will like it. There's another kind in which people want to achieve something and it's just not developed yet. And that is the way blockchain happened. So in 1992, uh, there was this movement called cypherpunk movement. And people realized even before internet was a thing, they realized that internet is going to be a thing. And if internet becomes very big, then the government can use or big major institutions or corporates can use that power over internet to monitor us, to track us and to also have 
if you make everything digital they can they can also track all of our financial happenings uh, in a micro way which would be a violation of privacy we are open to manipulation and uh, you know as they say the big brother state all of that would be made possible by the internet and so these people came together it was just a mailing list a cypherpunk movement and they said that we are going to ensure that there will be uh, privacy over here there will be some level of uh, personal individual individualism and then that is the movement which began in 1992 which gave birth to blockchain and bitcoins in 2008 so during that entire journey yeah, people have been trying to build something like bitcoin on blockchain consistently it was not that it just popped up out of nowhere and people had no idea there was digicash hashcash bitgold digigold so many other attempts uh time stamping began time stamping so basically what blockchain is it just gives you a guarantee that certain information has happened at certain point in time and what is recorded so what was recorded before could be garbage but once it comes into the platform it cannot be edited usually we talk about any database having crud uh, properties like uh, create read update and delete those are the four things you can do with a database now if i only add uh, if i remove everything and i keep only read and update then i cannot uh, read or create then i am not updating it and i am not deleting it all i can do is create new data and read that data so, so it's a very sanctity of what is already there it cannot be manipulated with yes by anyone even by the developers even by the sponsors by anyone because that's the way of keeping the data so imagine i like like let's say i'm in a room and we have this circular arrangement of chairs for example and i'm saying that no i don't want circular arrangement of chairs i want a row and columns in chairs that's all that we are doing with blockchain we are just rearranging the data and recording in such a way that any tampering edits deletes become impossible because every block of data is chained with the subsequent block of data in such a way that in order to change one you have to change everything but everything is mathematically locked so mm. it becomes impossible to change a long series and it's just that that data is secure because of mathematics so it has more to do with mathematics than it has to do with computer science that's one good thing because <laughs> <laughs> because that's where the power comes from because then that's when you know that uh, tomorrow just a brilliant line of code is not going to destroy this because we are relying on principles as fundamental as 2 plus 2 is equal to 4 2 plus 2 will always be equal to 4 whether it is a million years ago or a million years later so that's the source then the question happened uh, so there's this small country which i kind of very strongly advocated for that country is estonia and when i was in with the government of chatisgarh i saw what estonia was doing i realized we need to do something over here now imagine i have absolutely no uh, way to access developers there are no blockchain people majorly in india back then and it was just an idea so that's when the story began so i went on linkedin and uh, thankfully in 2017 for 7 8 months i was not on facebook and i was just but i was still addicted to social media but it was now linkedin so i realized that wait linkedin is the right place to do this so i went on linkedin and i added each and every person in the blockchain world that i could find 
so way back then i had only connections from uh, management iim people like 500 600 suddenly i have 18000 to 19000 friends and they spammed all of them like just just individual spamming so in my workshop i show the screenshots also of the first spam that i've sent to people there are customized spams they are not like i'll i'll share the screenshots with you so the first screenshot that i share is an australian person in fact coincidentally you are also in australia right now uh, dr jane thompson she's also from brisbane so dr jane thompson i'm sp- spammed her on uh, i think 6th may uh, 2017 or something south september i remember the dates because i show it in every workshop those screenshots and i'm telling her that i'm working for chatisgarh and i have this brilliant idea but i don't have any support and then that is how see that's how any startup should work you have to reach 1000 people then you end up talking daily with 100 people then you end up meeting daily for let's say 1/10th of that and then 1/10th of that finally goes into meaningful work which leads into value generation i was already aware of those uh, uh, ratios so i just went ahead and uh, started doing this uh, so i'll talk about jane's example first so dr jane uh, and me then started having video calls and because it was like you know uh, she was in australia back then so i had to manage at times and then i was just expressing to her my frustrations my challenges of bringing in a new technology which was out of my scope of work in my job no one else in india was doing it at that time and then she said just one time gaurav what if i come to chatisgarh and i give those presentations on if i said jane i can't even pay your cab cab expenses if you come over here she said no 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 i am a multimillionaire and it's okay i'll just uh, come over next week so that's when i changed my slide and you'll see jane in raipur with me <laughs> so next week she was there in chatisgarh in raipur and suddenly uh, you know she was the one giving presentations and imagine what happens to my credibility in front of the clients which is the bureaucracy that everyone is like no he can he, maybe you are talking about something serious i mean of course you are talking and similarly <laughs> we need external validation yeah. yeah and most of the time in fact and i am completely okay with that so uh, for for example and then my next task was how do i write something about blockchain uh, which could give space to it in implementation at the policy or guidelines level because you can't work outside the guidelines right the guidelines also okay. need to support and thankfully our we were also given the task of writing guidelines and sops which i had never done before uh, like i'm i'm uh, you know i'm not a policy writer in any sense so what do i do this time i reached out to professor edgar witley from london school of economics so uh, i'm telling professor edgar witley because he has written about blockchain and policy uh, through his london school of economics papers i tell him that i have read all everything that you uh, written but i have some doubts and then he said okay what are your doubts and that's how the conversation began and then he helped me to do all of that work and of course i got brilliant. all the credit for that that's yeah. just brilliant how you just it's absolutely yeah. like cold calling people but prior to that cold calling is all the work that you did on your oh, own yeah yes because the i realized that the only way that i you know rope him in is if i actually do the hard work uh because otherwise you know spam doesn't really work on anyone so when i say spam I actually meant customized individual messages to thousands i'm not And talking about that. there's something in there that caught the eyes of the people who needed to read it and that's yeah. how the story began 
All yeah. right. Then you did this with the government of Chhattisgarh, and did you actually manage to implement it across all the departments that you set out to do? Yeah. In fact, uh, you could say it, actually there it doesn't end with Professor Edgar Whitley. There are some important people also who came into the picture. So uh, after that, I had so many problem statements. I had so many challenges. Uh, like this is what it needs to be code. Now, how do I invite the international startups to do it? Right. So I, I proposed the idea of a hackathon, like the Hi. India's first hackathon sponsored by a government did not happen in Maharashtra, Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Andhra, or any of those Karnataka, those advanced, technically advanced states. It happened in Chhattisgarh. How did it happen? So first I got the sanction for the prize money from the government, because by this time already people were visiting us. We were doing pilots. And then I saw who was the winner of the world's first uh, blockchain hackathon. So London blockchain hackathon was won by uh, John Vive Livell. And John Vive Livell, she had won, won it in, I think, around 2018. And then in uh, 2017, it was, I think, a million dollar cash prize. Wow. And then I just reached out to her and I said, John Vive, if you just be an online jury for this hackathon, then I would get so much amount of traction. So many people would actually come because you're already famous, right? And we don't have a marketing budget. <laughs> I just so I have the price. I'm I'm just noticing that you have quite the marketing brain. Yeah, in fact, that's the, <laughs> that's the important part which makes the technical scope possible. So okay. John Will says that no, I will not be an online jury Gaurav. I will come there directly. So she flew all the way from London to Raipur. Then when I wanted to do land records, so there's this brilliant person called uh, uh, Christopher Bates in. USA in Indianapolis. To this day, we have never met each other. To this day, he's never been to Chhattisgarh. If you just, but he, I, I have dedicated an entire chapter in my Marathi book on him. And if you just, you know, meet him someday, he will be able to speak fluently about the Chhattisgarh land system. We have Khasra number, Basra number, Patwari, Tehsildar, Talati, everything. He knows all the processes because he coded all of that for free just because he wanted to help out. So that is the whole blockchain thing. And then, you know, how do we actually get funds for this entire project? And then it's a very simple idea. See what blockchain can do in the earlier problem that I mentioned is that it can provide you triggers for, for example, let's talk about birth. The moment someone registers for a birth certificate, we will already pre-code within smart contracts what does the certain characteristics and that trigger activate? What do I mean by characteristics? Age, gender, uh, religion, caste, income status. Those are by, characteristics. What do you mean by trigger in this context? Yeah. So triggers, uh, yeah. So triggers are events which will activate or deactivate a welfare scheme. Which are those triggers? Birth, death, marriage, migration. Okay. These are your major triggers. In your minor triggers are uh, accident. Uh, pregnancy, disease, these are your minor triggers. Now, why do I say major and minor? It's not terminology out there. So my client, Mr. Alex Paul Minan, and when me, when we're just studying the an entire uh, team at, at that time, we were just studying the different welfare programs. We realized that they get activated or deactivated based on these events only. So we try to simplify it, make it more generalized. So let's say birth. Now, if birth is associated with certain characteristics, let's say I am from labor department and I am going for a birth certificate for my child. So because I am from labor department, 
I am my child is eligible for a certain scholarship after the age of six. So the blockchain will remember yes, the birth has occurred, and mm -hmm. at the sixth birthday, the government will be getting a prompt: Are you paying them the welfare or not? So it's a reverse way. So basically, it was APJ Abdul Kalam who said in two thousand five, two thousand six, that India has a next window approach. It's a problem with more developed countries also. That no matter if you go to ask for a service, they will say go to the next window, go to the next window. <laughs> he said we have a one window approach. That no matter which uh, window you go to, you should be able to get all services. And then that entire project, me and my the Alex Paulman and the secretary, we wrote it down in a paper. It was circulated to all the states, and uh, just by doing the digitization activities in a state of population two point six crores, which is twenty uh, six million. um just by criss crossing the mad, uh, databases by realizing the value of having some level of uh, transparency not complete which would have privacy but some level we were able to identify 8.4 lakh sorry 84 lakh fake accounts which is 8.4 million so imagine mm -hmm. 26 million is the population wow the registered beneficiaries are 16 million out of the 16 million 84 lakh were having wrong account numbers Uh, like the money was going but we don't know where and then suddenly it was a big thing 700 crores were saved for the state when we stopped all of those accounts we asked for re-registration then we went to the world bank this time and this time i was presenting to the world bank of all of these ideas and then the world bank said yes it seems like a important initiative the state doesn't have the funds so they might as well uh, provide the funds and then i was leading that world bank project to make a whole scale project on this now while all of this was happening parallelly i always want i knew that i never want to be in a corporate i want to you know explore something challenge myself before corporate is a last resort so every weekend i was conducting blockchain workshops and my idea i already realized that the worst way that you can build a product is as an engineer if you think like an engineer you build something you think it has value the market will slap you very hard so it has to be opposite you just try to understand the domain understand their problems and then build something out of that understanding later on mm. because as i said i already had a spectacular failure in startup earlier so every weekend i was going and talking about blockchain to everyone who would listen whether it is pharmaceutical industries whether it is farmers whether it is uh, automobile industries fintech industries anyone anyone who would listen and then i started doing a lot of workshops just for the students and it was those workshops which got me into the dalai lama fellowship because they took cognizance of the workshops that i was taking and this was during my corporate job every weekend and one of those weekends happened to be when i was invited at the slum in santa cruz where students without any formal education had involved uh, had uh, developed uh, robotics so the people had developed uh, robotic hands some simple drones without any education so i was a chief guest over there as a motivational speaker and then i was talking there uh, that about how did i make this happen the world bank project what the blockchain can change things and then the farmers from nashik region were there so the india's largest group of small land holding farmers uh, is in say, is in nashik some of them uh, were there in, uh, in uh, the, uh, that program Uh, to to name it, Mr. Abbas Ab Kare, who was not directly a farmer, but of course uh, someone connected very very closely to them, 
and he said let us go to nashik and you do this entire thing with the farmers so then i go to nashik for two days then i am now teaching blockchain in marathi by taking leaves from my corporate job and then when the farmers tell me that wait you can help us to bring about traceability you can use the traceability information to help create credit score for us because in india farmers don't have credit scores and then they had this whole road map that's when i realized that okay this is something that i could do sir now and then that's when i quit my job with pwc with the world bank and uh, that's the birth of the startup an agro trust yeah wow i love the the fact that you know you went there and you were actually addressing problems and sort of co-creating solutions with their inputs rather than having a piece of tech and then trying to force fit it into some problem to see if it works or not so i think you you're sort of reaping the benefits of that isn't it great that's such yeah. a good story but i wanted to know you know in terms of scalability of course you're doing it now across maybe other places as well um obviously we are in australia and uh, are there applications that you know of in australia or how is it sort of seen in this environment there was a chance of you know technical collaboration with australia also in one place i'll tell you how so what do we do in agriculture so we digitize the entire value chain from farmers inventory management uh, labeling uh, right until the final product so we end up printing qr codes and i'll share those screens with you which you can display uh, we end up printing qr codes on end products so even if you are purchasing chilies for 40 rupees 30 rupees you would find a qr code on top of it what happens when you scan that qr code the moment you scan that qr code you see the entire information in three parts first is know your farmer so farmer photograph from which farmer it has come and uh, the farmer details know your food so the people who are conscious about the food that they are eating whether it is really fresh on which date it was harvested whether it has certifications let's say uh, it could be fair trade certification there are so many certifications within food all of those certifications which are relevant are shown live and the third which is uh, that is the blockchain philosophy power it is if you have purchased something for 40 rupees we can show that out of this the farmer is getting let's say 15 rupees or 20 rupees and that what is happening with the rest of the money then we are able to show the demarcation of that entire money part and we have so far printed 5.2 million qr codes across the past two years and then we realized that this could be replicated in a cotton way also because i come from marathwada aurangabad and over there most of the farmer suicides are for cotton farmers and then cotton is a very you know cotton itself has a very larger explore the entire story of cotton is a story of exploitation when it comes to the western world but it's not much dissimilar to what we face in maharashtra also because the cotton farmers face extremely bad uh, situations now i told the farmers of nashik what we are doing over here in fruits and vegetables can we do it in cotton for the place that i belong from so mr vilash shinde the farmer leader over there he said that okay but think end to end because we have to digitize the whole chain so what do you end up digitizing in a cotton part it's a t-shirt in fact i could show you some t-shirts there are many lying around over here so every t-shirt comes with a qr code let's see it, it yeah uh, if you just give me a second then okay so this is our joint venture you can uh, type in a code there sample code k e b p c y 
कैप्स लॉक के ई बी पी सी वाई so then if you scan the qr code on the t-shirts then you can see the entire journey of where it is coming from who is getting how much money so the entire traceability and transparency within the cotton aspect so it's far we have brilliant yeah so so far we have sold 50000 t-shirts the way that we as a technology provider earn money is a per qr code basis that's also transparent how much the farmers earn that's also transparent and uh, amir khan in fact came to the farmers facility in nashik and he did a small documentary on this which will soon be released that's uh, on yeah i'm i'm absolutely like mind blown yeah. by this because there is you know we talk a lot about all this no like in in terms of speaking the right things and doing yeah. the right things in liberal circles you know buying yeah. trade and eating organic and uh, you know uh compensating people fairly for their labor but this actually kind of makes it possible beyond yeah. works which is absolutely great and that's what uh, blockchain is supposed to do see blockchain as united nations said has now raised questions okay uh, i'll briefly talk about the other revolution that blockchain is bringing uh if you have trust coming from mathematics and not from people then how the world changes and that is called web 3 currently you and me are interacting on web 2.0 in so what is web 1.0 we only read static information on pages let's say 15 years ago yahoo redis all of that web 2.0 is when we are writing information also into the internet right now we are writing information on the internet because the servers are recording our uh, video interactions or if you are doing a facebook post you are giving information right so the right part but the thing is there's a caveat all of that information that you write is owned by someone else mm. they they are the ones who monetize it and uh, the way that it happens is the when you go to the internet you and everyone is homeless we have to live in someone else's home so i have to take a gmail id so i'm taking gmail i'm living in gmail's house then i'm using that to log into facebook that I, then i go to the second floor of mark zuckerberg but i don't live on the internet as such mm. right i am already always yeah. living in someone else's home when i'm using any services so web 3.0 is an internet based on blockchain in which you are the owners of your information so in fact uh, uber india uh, the upper management uber ceo and everyone they invited me for a talk why because they were very worried of something happening in bangalore so in bangalore there is a brilliant three member led uh, blockchain our initiative called drive drife and if you go to the bangalore airport just download that app next time and use that for your cab services why because these three people i have just created a blockchain service which does everything that uber does but it doesn't charge the driver at all so let's say if you are paying 100 rupees for an uber or ola ride out of that 40 rupees goes to uh, around 40 rupees goes back to the app that uh, service the whether ola or uber now if you remove that 40 rupees suddenly there is almost a twice increase in the profit or in my uh, savings as a customer and this is something which had already happened uh, in us when an uber driver with a computer science degree just like me left uber to create a, a blockchain platform so all of these aggregators ola uber airbnb facebook instagram youtube netflix they are aggregators 
Facebook is a is Facebook earns money by content, but it is not. It doesn't create content. You, me, and everyone else create content, and we make Mark Zuckerberg rich. And that's a very fraudulent model. So there are six social media platforms that I can that I've uh, documented in my book, in which I've just begun. In which, if my post goes viral, the advertisers' money will come directly to me because there is no Mark Zuckerberg to pay money to. TikTok, for example. Yes. There are ways. So that the entire revenue models are shifting. So that's another blockchain revolution. So when it comes to Australia part, in fact, uh, as I was saying, Australia has been trying to do this uh, because I've been interacting with them since I was in government. And there was this company. There's this company in Australia called Horizon State. I reached out to them. They were doing not just electoral voting on blockchain, but imagine managing your entire municipality through voting. So, for example, if there are funds, the citizens can see how much funds there are, and then citizens through voting can choose whether to use those funds for repairing a road or building a park. Oh my goodness! Next yeah. level accountability and transparency. Yeah, in fact, it's you're letting the citizens now run the government, right? So the, those kind of pilots happened. They were slowly getting scaled, and the largest crowdfunding project in history of Australia was Horizon State, because everyone within that district uh, come, uh, funded them very crazily. Now they're looking out ways to scale, but uh, you know the barriers to implementing this are human barriers, not technical barriers. Right. So you have to take everything with a kind of pinch of a salt. That why is it not getting scaled? Because the answer is. We are as a blockchain changes the way the society works, and there's always friction. And this uh, is the question I had when you were talking about the farmers um, yeah. and agriculture, and you know, I mean, uh, sort of agriculture has come a little bit more into the limelight, obviously after the farmer protests and all of that. And there are various, uh, I suppose, stakeholders who may not want that level of transparency, may not want that level of. Uh, yeah. Um, agency to lie in the hands of every piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So what then is the way around that? So the only way around that is uh, you can't do it directly uh, in, a, in a sense that for everyone. You have to let the farmers do something and then you meet them midway. So What does that mean? Yeah. So in India, the, the cooperative movement for farmers is happening since 1920s. But that's how you have the Amul story. Cooperative is farmers come together, right. form a cooperative, work together. But there are limitations to it. So something happened in 2010. I think 2009 or 2010. The, the, everyone there, based on a committee report, Saxena committee report, I think, they realized that there is something really seriously wrong with cooperative. We need a new model. So they came up with something called as a farmer-producer company. What is a farmer company? In that farmer-producer company, only farmers can be the shareholders, first thing. If I am not a farmer, I cannot invest in that company. I cannot gain any stakes. The other is, regardless of my shareholding, landholding as a farmer, I have only one equal vote. In a private limited company, if I have 51% stakes, I control uh, right. everything. It doesn't happen over there. And then they built in these special rules so that they would learn from the failures of the cooperative system as well as the pros and cons of NGO uh, private limited, LLP, limited liability partnerships. They've studied all of these associations and created a new association. So within a farmer producer company, you have hundreds and thousands of farmers who come together and they are the ones now pushing through. And they, they are our clients, you could say. That's where we help them. We help them everything from logo design, website design. The more democratic sort of a 
Yeah. Like a true democracy. Yeah, in a true, in a true, true yeah. democracy. So, for Thank example, Bilash Shinde, 13,000 farmers vote for him annually and he is re-elected to be the chairman. Mm-hmm. He can be removed from the chairman if the votes are differently. And everything is voting based. Now, that is where we focus. In India, within the past 10 years, already 10,000 farmer producer companies have emerged. Which state and are we talking about? All Indian states, uh, primarily in Maharashtra. Because out of those 10,000, I think three to 4,000 belong to Maharashtra alone. So Maharashtra has the bulk of it. But you would find at least 10 to 100 uh, farm producer companies all across in every state of India. We help the farmers run their business like a proper business and not as a charity case by giving them very cheap software modules for registering themselves for HR management, for inventory management, for labels. And those are the sort of set of software modules which we monetize. And sometimes if you, but in the case of t-shirts, there's a lot of data gestion that happens, but we kept it very simple that we will be pay, getting paid based on per QR code basis. For other fruits and vegetables tracking, which a per soft, how much software that you're using. So that you are ensuring that the benefits of technology, the most advanced technologies are also flowing down and not just, you know, getting up. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a sort of tangential question to this, that obviously all of this seems extremely inspiring and next, sort of the next level of growth where sort of tech and social good kind of can come together. Now, among young people um, in India, maybe even outside, of course, among the NRI communities, there's always this desire to get involved in India, to help India, to do something in India, to do something for India. Uh, this seems like a space that is only going to sort of explode in terms of its uh, application. What are some of the ways in which people can invest or get involved in this sort of business? Uh, So the first and most primary way is that, let's say you're purchasing your fruits and vegetables from a corporate uh, supermarket, as opposed to uh, from a farmer producer company. That's where we actually the QR codes help. We do the QR codes because we want the customers to know that this is where it's coming from. So supporting the initiatives which are meaningfully right and there's not just a lot of greenwashing which is happening. Uh, we're also working heavily into carbon credits. Uh, I've done a lot of coding over there also. But uh, the thing is to differentiate between all of this uh, uh, major narratives of sustainability, sustainable development goals by United Nations, and separating that from how much is actually affecting on the ground, how much benefits it actually happens. I can burn uh, five carbon credits right now and I will say that, yes, I'm offsetting all of my airplane travel for the last two months. Does it really mean it? The, <laughs> mean much? That's, those are the questions. So first introspection would be needed of uh, whether we are doing something good for actual change or just you know for the sake of it, for feeling so. Um, and the other ways is... Uh, the farmer producer companies would always be needing assistance whether it is market, whether it is uh, a more diversification. And so, for example, one of our clients called Project Hum, it's a restaurant uh, in South Bombay and they purchase only from farmer producer companies, They're all of their ing- ingredients. Now, what you've done for them is reverse traceability. If you go to the restaurant, on every table, there will be a QR code if you scan that QR code, it's not for menu. It basically tells you where the different ingredients have been sourced from. That's, that's really interesting. 
And I know it's, it's an interesting idea for these times, you know, where, yeah. where the so, sort of social consciousness has also reached a level where people are starting to care about these things. Yeah. And, and that's the right time. Because if people don't ask the question that, uh, why are we not seeing, then if not now, then it won't happen. And you see, uh, there's also an element. That's where you have to realize that blockchain actually makes the trust possible. But we, it was possible to show this uh, digitally earlier also. That's when you realize that you have to use the hype of blockchain also. Because if you don't use the hype of a technology, you see, there are so many people saying, that, oh, this is hype, that is hype, that is hype. Okay, of course, I know that is hype. Are you going to use that hype for a good purpose? Or are you just going to trying to sound smarter by, you know, saying, that, oh, that's just an hype? Of course, but if you can use the hype to say, okay. now let us, you know, you have to digitize it. Then they would do some things which they could have done earlier, but they were not. But just because they are swept up in the tsunami of the hype, they have to do it. Which is how things happen in the government also or anywhere else. You right. have to orchestrate so many things. It's a merry dance, isn't it? Of various elements yeah. that come together. All right, yeah. let's, let's uh, move a little bit um, out of this into... Your work for the, this Dalai Lama fellow sounds very intriguing. I know you yeah. said it came about because of the series of workshops that you were doing. Uh, is there anything yeah. um, that you're doing with it right now? Is it sort of an annual fellowship? or? Yeah. So it has a lifelong commitment attached to it. And uh, there's an annual, uh, it has a year-long training that happens. So the way that you get selected is you apply for it, you talk about all of the work that you've been doing, then they will audit it, they will interview you. And from 2019, the, the my batch, three Indians were selected. And it was a total batch of 25 people and 40 countries were eligible to apply for it. So out of those 25, three were from India itself. And all that, that I had pushed for was the work that I had been doing. Uh, that yes, this is the workshops in technology knowledge dissemination that I've been trying to do. And that's what gets you selected. Now, after I got selected, that's when I said that, uh, then that's when I actually kind of, I did not want to prima facie put in my ideology. If you visit Dalai Lama Fellows page right now, you will see that they have asked for a vision. And my vision statement begins with, as Dr. Baba Sabambedkar said, today's society needs, and then there's an entire statement. That statement happened after I became a Dalai Lama fellow. Because mm -hmm. another statement that I wanted to bring through my work with, whether it's a British Council fellowship or like I have five, six fellowships, all of those five, six fellowships are happening because I want to put the work ahead. And then I talk about where I come from, because I'm not saying that you should not be talking about where you come from, what's my background, what's my social background. But today, the thing is that uh, it if you don't, uh, if you're not careful enough, you can just end up being tokenized. And there are people happy enough to tokenize themselves to unlimited degrees. I just happen to not be one of them and I don't want others to be one of them because then it limits your entire existence. Then you're not a blockchain expert, then you're just a Dalit blockchain expert. Of course I'm not. I'm a global blockchain expert. Why wouldn't I be? So uh, why would you limit yourself just for some one short-term gain? I'm just talking, yeah, people should be selfish. People should actually in a good way. People should achieve for everything, but there's a way to do it. And if you, it, it's a matter of where you put in at what time. So while gaining the Dalai Lama Fellowship, it was all just about the work that I've been doing. The moment I got there, they asked me for which vision statement I should show there. That's when I say that, okay, this is where, where I come from and this is my vision statement. So Dalai Lama Fellowship was also instrumental because 
uh, after I went there, it's you go to University of Virginia twice in US, you interact with all of those fellows. That's when you uh, have those discussions regarding how complex it is to navigate technology and other terrains oh, while fighting with the backgrounds that you come from. You do all of that later when uh, because that's that's what makes it more meaningful also in a very powerful way compared to if I just restrict myself under a, a cocoon of an identity and rely on that to transport me as much as far away as it takes me but I would be again at the mercy of the winds uh, that's that, that's what Baba Seb said right you have to kind of open your entire wingspan and that's when you actually break the cocoon this is what I am this is one of those things that I am and that's when uh, your words have more uh, weight to it and I've learned this from mistakes I've not learned this by following or criticizing other people. I've learned this by mistakes. When I was very vocal on these issues, I got offered a PhD in Gottingen University in 2014. But then I was happy. But then I realized if my interest and all of my talents are with uh, mathematics or evolution or any other subject concerned with science, why am I only getting offered philosophy for sociology as a, in Dalit studies? Because I said, wait, wait a minute. Because I had been through those things in 2014. I had been vocal about them also. I've documented this. And then I realized that, yes, uh, there is a way to navigate our identity. And the Lama Fellowship was a way to do that in, in for once. Uh, British Council was entirely with the policy work that I had done with blockchain. That's what got me in. I was asked to present my work in UK Parliament, in House of Lords, in House of Commons. I spent an entire day at the UK Prime Minister's residence. I sat on the chair, which Winston Churchill used to sit in and decide <laughs> what to do with World War II while sipping whiskey. So, uh, and then were those, those spaces when I begin a speech with JBM. Uh, that, that, that's much more uh, meaningful, right? Rather than saying, you know, please select me because of, I'm not kind of trying to do any kind of mockery. I'm just saying that. There is a you have you have to understand how the world also operates. We might want the world to look at us in a certain way, but what if that gaze itself limits our entire soul? Let's just so move back a little bit. We've yeah, jumped yeah. right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realize it. Yeah. Let's just move take 10 steps back. When yeah. I got introduced to you on Facebook, which is the great introducer of you yeah. know interesting people and interesting ideas. Um, one of the first things that I read was, uh, you know, all the stuff that you were doing on uh, caste identity and on uh, some of the things that you've spoken of right now of sort of this tokenism yeah. and the single lens and uh, almost to a point of being fetishized um, as an identity, um, as another way to oppress. You were writing on... Uh, Round, round, round table, table India. on Roundtable India and you were sharing some of those and I find that you know some of those things that you spoke about as ideas have sort of uh, come into play so much as action in your life since then so this journey that you say that you've learned through your mistakes or you've learned through maybe observation of how the real world is operating and where you want to be seen and where you want to see yourself and what you had said earlier that you don't want to speak truth to power you want to speak power to power 
Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a very different ideology and it's something that uh, I think is quite inspiring. So if you'd like to talk a little yeah. bit about that journey. Yeah, so uh, my parents come from villages. They had their hardships. My father was born an orphan. He came to uh, Aurangabad. My mother also then with then they met, they married and Aurangabad has, has this entire history of uh, uh, anti-caste struggles throughout uh, because that's where Baba Sahib decided to, Baba Sahib Ambedkar decided to build uh, the People's Education Society. Uh, many hostels offered many scholarships, which is was which is what paved the way for the first generation to people actually do something, get jobs, get education. And we call ourselves the second generation. In many cases, uh, of course, it's a, still a minority, but uh, now that entire struggle, uh, since uh, which is happening since decades, you're just suddenly born into it. So from the moment of your birth, you've assimilated like all the, uh, you know, you could say the energy and the enthusiasm and the wholesome attitudes behind that, how people actually operate it in a good way. And you, that you're just kind of absorbing it for as much as possible, whether or not you want to, you're, you're getting exposed to it, right? So that's one good, great thing that does happen. And given my case, that did happen in my case. And I was learning so much. So my father used to tell me that we had this bad trend. It Initially, it was a good trend when we were writing this new genre called Dalit autobiographies. And in 1990s, he said it just became worse because now everyone's writing Dalit autobiography. And it's now become a competition of uh, how much you glorify and how much you... It's a competition of pains, basically. And then how is, my father was like of the opinion that why do people do this? In fact, someone from my own family, a close family member has written the autobiography. And then my father stopped talking to him for a good amount of time. Because he, yeah, because he says, why are you doing this? In fact, when I was, whenever I used to introduce my father uh, in stages or used to speak about him or my mother, he was very clear that I should not be saying things, which I just said. In fact, right now he would be very angry. Yeah, which I said that he's orphan, he came from village. He said, no, you speak about the things that I've done. I've done laser surgeries in brain cancer in Switzerland. I've been invited to Germany to perform surgeries. I've removed uh, record weighing tumors from uh, bodies for after performing 15 hours of surgery. Those are the things you mention about me. You don't get to speak even as my son regarding what I've been through. I've, because I've realized that the, what the world respects is this. And then, in fact, there's a Facebook post, in fact, which he read in 2014, in which I talk about his life journey and he got really pissed off. He called me asking to delete it. Basically saying that, why are you writing on that portion? That is my hardships. You write, you you should focus on my good parts, on my success, because why else am I doing all of this? It's because you should now carry it ahead. And then, yeah, I said, okay, that makes sense. And then at the same time, I realized that uh, when you open your identity, you have to defend that identity also. And in the more in that in that uh, transition phase where you defend a community, there is this transition in which you don't know whether you are defending the community or uh, you're just kind of defeating, uh, assimilating some parts of that into your own sense of identity of who you are. And I wrote about it. Then I realized that that's when in 2015. Uh, with uh, Kofir Nalgundwar, Narin Bedide and uh, Anuram Das who are running uh, the Roundtable India. 
that's when I started. So if you look at my first article, identify as a Dalit and I spoke about that, then I realized it wait a minute. Maybe there are just some words and conventions I have to use too. But then there's an article that I clearly write later on in which I specifically speak about uh, just me as a human being. And I, there's this, uh, so the founder of Dalit Panther, in fact, Mr. Raja Dhale gave a very great statement. He said that uh, Dalitism is not the final vision. Humanism is the final vision. Now imagine who is saying that it is the founder of Dalit Panther who is saying afterwards that Dalitism is what is Dalitism. There's no such thing as Dalitism. Humanism is the final goal and you aim for that. And then you then you realize some uh, uh, like there's a statement Baba Medical, which all of us know verbatim. Uh, which is cultivation of mind should be the ultimate aim of human existence. Uh, but what does it really mean? Why does he even, why is he saying that? It's because if caste is not just something which would operate externally in my material uh, resources, constraining it, oppressing me in the slurs and insults, nah, not just that. If you allow it to, if you end it, it has to be allowed in. If you allow it to enter your mind also, then it uh, will restrict you an entire being. And then as an immune response, you may try to defend yourself and try to identify yourself in a negative way that no, this is this solid identity, this block of a people and with a certain shared characteristics. And uh, and that's, that is when a race is created, right? So everything should have been reversed. Like everyone is a human being. The people who are actually doing the operation actually holding resources, actually holding so many resources of uh, uncounted value, which is creating starvation and oppression everywhere else, who should be questioning whether they are human beings or not? The moment you yourself try to identify, oh, wait, am I a special version of a human being? Uh, okay, I'm not a homo sapien. Maybe I'm this homo dalit sapien. And what does that even mean? But that's how you start looking at yourself. And that's where all the problems arise. And you know, this article of yours, I really want to share that as well because it yeah. it really it just challenges so many uh, sort of established norms and notions. Um, yeah. So I I think that's a very very important. It's a very seminal work in that way that it really challenges a lot of narratives. And I had uh, you know this one I had re- remembered it then and then when I was going to uh, talk to you I went back to read it. And then, you know, the Madhuri Nagesh Babu's caste certificate, it says, my caste certificate shall become the foreword of the new history that I shall write. Yeah. See, it's it's, it's a foreword and you have to write the entire book. And uh, that kind of assertion, then suddenly what happens, you have all these bad examples in front of you where somehow the identity becomes a stepping stone, identity becomes a way to, if you're sitting on a round table and if you're saying that, no, this is my identity and that's why you take cognizance, then you have to realize that you have to play by some rules because you're already playing by the rules that, okay, you're allowed to speak because you're a certain identity. Then how do you defy those rules again? You don't defy any rules. You defy the rules when you actually bring the table to the conversation and then say, okay, you sit on this table. now. I'm not some bringing something to the table. I'm bringing the table now to the conversation. That's when you, and there's no passing the mic, as I said. I mean, that's just so cute. I just, I can't hate it. It's just because it's so cute, childishly cute. I don't want to pass the mic. I, I can have a live concert DJ right behind you. 
and i'll g- gather all the audiences to me i'll be rather a rock star than just you know uh, passing the mic person beside you because why not the moment you say pass on the mic but you're still on their platforms and just i'm not saying as them but you're always asking for things and can i just but, say that not everybody is also a god or someone not everybody yeah. has what you have and not everybody possibly you know has this force of conviction as well right and this yeah. force of conviction that you have i think it comes from a lot that you have yourself experienced and seen and that sort of forged the way that you are able to think about things and i think it's exceptional like i was telling you earlier of course there is identity of course there is all of that but some people transcend identity some people yeah. like you know they're not confined or restricted by what the world wants them to be and they can be role models for anyone like today what you're doing you are a role model for anybody of course there is a place in which you know you will be seen in the context of where you come from that aside you are you are inspiring for anybody including i think my son and i should show him all of this and you know we keep talking about um the problems of today are sort of the jobs of tomorrow and in that sense it's almost like what are you here to solve and what are you here to make better and what are you here to ease in this world and in yeah. many ways that's what you're doing you're easing lives you're easing livelihoods for people through what you're doing and that's universal that is yeah. beyond any passing the mic or building a stage or any of that um i wanted to talk since you did speak about your father and i know um, you know you you uh, were influenced deeply by by what sort of his baby work ethic and all of that what are some of those things that you kind of see carrying forward through your own work and not just your father maybe even your mother because i know she was also yeah. an influence and is an influence so uh, with I'll begin with my mother. If I read anything today, it's because the entire credit goes to my mother, because she is the one who uh, reads everything uh, that that comes to her, and she is the one, in fact, who got me interested into complicated subjects at a very young age. For example, DNA, genetics. I had offer in GR uh, to do an entire fully funded scholarship course from South Korea. at the age of 14 because she had already just been teaching me dna for time pass she's a doctor and a physiology uh, uh, md and so that understanding that yes i can and all of these complicated subjects of physiology genetics they are so interesting evolution that come from her and my father is as a kind of again as a, uh, like the word that that you use like a force of nature that i think it would apply more to him because you can see him navigating everything uh, all of his uh, social barriers all of his uh, professional barriers with uh, certain energy which was simply unknown for example he was the one who erected uh, the preamble in uh, the government college he had this portraits of uh, baba saheb ambedkar phule shivaji maharaj placed across the government hospital premises because as uh, i had seen all him, him do all of that i had seen him getting invited to uh, germany in switzerland all of that just while maintaining a sense of casualness about it that yes of course we have to do these things like not make it 
kind of uh, a big uh, it's not righteousness it's just like casualness like ஒரு and then that is where that is radical ra- living your life with radical honesty yeah you know yeah in fact that's the way uh, so that's the one thing i learned from him and then i saw how he, he you know just last week his students had a symposium named after him because my father loved doing a surgery called the stapes surgery the innermost bone within the ear is called stapes so if you can replace that that's a uh, stapy surgery he loved doing that very complicated yeah, a surgeon has to use both their hands while doing it and it has to be uh, an open it cannot be an endoscopy based surgery because it's very skillful very uh, difficult to do he loved teaching it also and then he created this sense of comfort with his people and that is what helps me to you know run a team so we are close to 20 people right now and when i'm speaking from you right now i i live in the same flat as my developers uh the girls i have a, a flat just adjacent to this apartment so we have the opposite thing from work from home we even you know the when <laughs> that you heard there's another developer coming back from the gym right now and we have our office and kilometer apart so how do you build a team how do you respect each other as colleagues because my developers currently get offered salaries which would shame silicon valley developer salaries because that's how trained and experienced they are and they still don't choose to go there because they can see this vision they have this entire uh, philosophy shared philosophy guiding them how do you nurture that all of those things i have seen him do so the startup is possible because of my parents what i learned from them my reading my outlook of life is possible because of them and yeah that that's something that i don't wish to see extinguished with their deaths and i'm just looking at myself as a vessel for some important ideas that could be shared through through my actions or my writing or even documentation such as these which are very important brilliant finally yeah. advice for younger people now i'm going to make you feel not so young by <laughs> asking you to give advice for young but no really if you were to distill i mean you've had so many learnings um from failure from success from collaboration from audacity what are the yeah. what are the uh, lessons if you had to give younger people today wanting to make a difference in the world so the two things which have really helped me throughout is uh, kindness and curiosity uh, and i'll talk about kindness in a broader way uh, because if you are not kind to others then you're not going to be kind to yourself also and if you're really aiming for bigger things then you have to be ready to fall really hard on your faces uh, whether it is financially or ideologically because those failures will happen because if you want to try then you have to and how do you absorb those failures it is again kindness which helps you if you are not kind to others you won't be kind to yourself and then it's just the worst way to do things and if you are not kind uh, I mean, when i'm saying kind i'm just saying a broader level of empathy when you just try to understand more how different people would i'm not talking about forgiving that's a very bad way to put it across kindness in just terms of the empathy kind 
because that helps you with, yeah that helps you with, in every way 360 degree if i am kind to my client and i can understand their problems then i can see oh wait a minute this is their problem maybe this could be the solution it helps me in problem solving also so curiosity in a broader context not just curiosity just in one way but curiosity just to explore things things that are not necessarily just part of your uh, supposed to do list so the best thing to do is not to have any supposed to do list at all at all and a lot of this has been shaped by because i've been through many fellowships and like dalai lama fellowship it has its own syllabus called head heart and hands so one important thing that i learned over there was having an agenda less presence during my mba at the most premier institute in india i was taught that you need to have an agenda for every meeting pinpointed these are the deliverables you grab this you negotiate this and then you come back you seal the deal kind of thing and then there this dalai lama then comes and says no you need for a really, really larger engagement you need to have an agenda less presence because that's when you absorb things as much as you possible so that's the most critical part an agenda less presence is what helps me to understand my clients queries understand my developers problems understand my investors problems what they're coming from and then try to be a better person in that way yeah so being uh, before doing yeah being before doing yeah nicely said yeah beautiful thank you um this has been really enlightening and actually there's so many new things that are going on in the world that i'm glad that we are being able to share through this platform and uh, i'm sure this will not be the last time we'll have you on pause with nandini because there's still a lot of unfinished business with you i still need to ask yeah. you about many other things that you're doing but for the moment thank you so much thank you so much nandini for this wonderful opportunity thank you